The following is a production of Entertainment Rating Services. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be. Hello everyone and welcome to Shackles, Burlap, and Lies, Episode 3. That's right, like I said last time, we made it to Episode 2. Well, we've made it one more episode. It's a trend. Today, I'm very excited to announce that I'm joined by Phil Van Hest, who is the Rigging and Safety Manager for Bigger Hammer Productions out of Long Beach, California. How are you doing, Phil? What up, Ethan? It is Tuesday in America, and I am feeling fine. Happy Tuesday, everyone, or whatever day it is when you are encountering the words I am saying. Exactly. So uh, the first question, just so everyone can get acclimated, who who are you? Yeah, geez, you know, I get that a quest. I get that question a lot these days. Um, I'd like to buy these uh, frozen peas. Yes, sir. And who are you? And uh, it just holds up the whole line because then I have to do the whole backstory. So we'll start when I'm an adult already. Um, I started working for Bigger Hammer, the company you mentioned, while I was still in college. A friend wanted me to be in a play and I said, I can't afford to be in your play. And he said, what if I got you a job? And I said, OK. And I interviewed with Boxer and was a stagehand for 10 years. And while I was stagehanding, I was a touring comic. Uh, I might as well get that out in the open because that's that's a true thing. I wrote and produced my own comedy shows for 10 years and then uh, had a child and started getting real jobs, was the master carpenter for a performing arts center in Davis, the Mondavi Center. Hey, dudes, how are you guys doing? Still nothing? All right, hang tough. And kept in touch with Boxer, uh, so he knew I got my ETCPs and he knew that I was doing, you know, private or independent rigging work, and he knew that I'd started my own scenic design business when I was in Indiana because I'd call him for tax filing <laughs> advice. So when he needed a safety manager, he called and said I should apply, so I did. And it turns out I had accidentally accrued enough talents and skills to be a rigging and safety manager, which I've been doing since last February. And as you may or may not know, um, being involved with rigging means you're involved with safety, so that's a natural marriage. Um, and in the entertainment industry, it's a constant uphill push to maintain the quality and caliber of both of those things uh, while still allowing the contracts <laughs> to be fulfilled in a timely manner. It's always a unique challenge. So anyway, that's me. I went from the world of comedy to the world of rigging, which is the least funny aspect of production like uh there's nothing there's no you know there's a lot of jokes about riggers but it's the most serious thing that happens in any part of the production like if the sound design is bad people might walk away saying i didn't you know it didn't sound great and if the lighting design is bad they might walk away saying that didn't look great and if the rigging design is bad no one's walking away at all so there's exactly. just there's no room jokes except that one i guess hey do you have like a closing part of the show where you get your guests to share their favorite rigor jokes jeez it's like you may have already listened to an episode or 
to yeah yeah we do we'll we'll get to that part there I mean, it is i jumped gun my bad no it's fine it's fine um so you'd mentioned that uh in your progression you got your etcp certification first question is did you get it in arena theater both and again yes we're talking about rigging so i'm not going to ask if you have the electrical or power distribution um were you working for a company when you got it, or was it more of a uh, personal challenge or a, a desire to have it as a selling point as you progressed in your career? It was requested of me at my job as the master carpenter and head rigger of this venue. They needed someone to be competent or appear competent in the world of rigging and they asked if I if they paid for it would I do it and I said sure and I started studying and I got both of them because we were a you know proscenium theater with 68 line sets but also you know there's more and more motors in shows these days so I told them I needed both because we did truss and motor rigging from our grid so I needed to have both of them and uh, I actually did better on the arena test than the theater test even though most of my experience at that time was in theater because i don't know i don't know the way that the questions rolled out for me in my test i had about i felt like 25 percent of the questions were about hemp rigging about which i did not know anything right. <laughs> so i'd never done, worked in a venue with hemp before so i was really out of water on that and i'd purposefully not spent any time learning about it for this test because i thought really i'm but it's that's fair you know a lot of houses still have it and if you have it you got to know it but i still only encounter it like as a decorative aspects of like hey look we still have some hemp rope in a pile over in the corner there but uh not a lot of places use them anymore there's an old opera house in woodland that still had it decoratively installed kind of overlaid on the actual rigging so that they said it was for sponsors uh they wanted to see the old-timey looking stuff in there but they assured me it was not uh, load-bearing in any way. So that was ETCPs for me. Mine are actually up this month. My five years is up this month, so I've been talking with Meredith about getting my renewals sorted out. But uh, it was not for personal uh, reasons, but when uh, I did get some gigs through the ETCP jobs. Uh, no, not the jobs board. Someone just looked me up. You know, There was a guy who needed an LED wall, and he looked up, right. find a tech in my area and he called and asked if I could do this that and the other thing and if you're a rigger out there and someone asks you to go do some rigging for them ask about 10 times more questions than you think you need to because <laughs> if it's some guy who's calling who's cold calling for a rigger chances are they don't know a damn thing right well certainly and and, and that's something that we um We'll talk a lot about uh, with um, people who post on social media, so whether it's on some of the groups on Facebook or on controlbooth.com. Without fail, someone will ask a question of, hey, I want to I want to fly this 500 pound ostrich in my theater and I don't have a counterweight or any rigging systems. How do I do this? And without fail, the answer is hire a professional. Um, yeah. <laughs> there are certain challenges to trying to uh, get all the details and all the information from an online post or from a picture. I'm 
I'm not a big fan of people who on social media see a picture of rigging and say, here's all the things they did wrong. It's very easy to take those photos out of context and not have all the information and not be able to do the full risk assessment. You know, hey, that cantilever is 12 feet long. You can't do that. Well, what if there's nothing on it? What if it's a scenic (laughs) element and it's just self-weight? You know, can't tell that from the photo. What I was getting at a little bit more than that is if you're a professional working in the field, especially entertainment rigging, you can get used to a certain level of competence from the clients or vendors or venues that you're working with to have maintained a certain level of safety or to know some of the basics. I was just sort of saying that if you know if you, if you get cold called to go be a you know a contractor rigger for a, an event, don't assume anything. You know, they might I called a professional. Now everything is taken care of, but right. they didn't order trust. In order, you know, there's nothing there. You show up and you're like well, where's all the stuff? And they're like, I thought you were doing that. You know, that kind of thing. That's you just why have I hired to, you. Like, okay, what exactly? Write it out in the invoice exactly what it is I'm going to do and not do so that I can point at these things when you start yelling at me when I get there. That's all I meant by that. Like, if you're going to wander out into the, the wild west world of independent rigging contract stuff, uh, <laughs> Be very clear about what you're going to provide and not provide. That's all I meant by that. Because one gig I showed up and they're like, we need you to rebuild the insides of this wall to support this thing. Like, that's not my gig. (laughs) You need a wall guy. I don't know. Right. You need a wall guy for that. So your your journey into the rigging side of the industry really stemmed from uh, you being working in that theatrical application in that component being one of your responsibilities correct yeah i mean i had 10 years on the ground with bigger hammer not doing rigging per se but having to do some ground stuff being around it enough to know what i was looking at and what i what some basics of what i was dealing with were but when i got the job as you know a master carpenter I had to really, I spent five years really educating myself because it occurred to me that I was the final say on the things that were happening in this venue. And that while my financial liability may have been protected as an employee of the University of California, the, the, the the knowledge that I had participated in or that my ignorance had led to some kind of avoidable accident was unacceptable to me. So I wanted to know everything there was to know so that I didn't have to live with the memory of having caused some kind of loss of life or property or what have you. You know, it's right. when you realize that, oh, I'm the adult here. There isn't anyone above me. I was the head of a department of one and I was in charge of rigging and there were things I didn't know. So I went and learned all those things and I learned them as much as I could and then started the training programs in that venue to train because I needed, you know, assistance periodically. So I had to train people how to pull points and train people how to rig in the, you know, we had a little black box theater that had some double thick unistrut that we would rig off of but it had very particular uh amounts you could 
deal with on there per bay and, you know, per point load and whatever. So I just tried to say things like, all right, we're only putting quarter ton motors in here. That way the motors will protect the beams by not operating if you overload them and working with the audio guys to make sure they didn't buy or source any material that was going to be too heavy to go in there and then just try to engineer out or, you know, administrate out all the hazards by just nothing heavy is going to go in here at all. Like there's no way you can over rig. There's no way you can, you know, overload this system because none of that equipment is available. <laughs> right. And I, I left, I left behind a little rigging Bible that I'd built up and signage all over the place that hadn't been there. Like you can only put this much here and this much there. And if it gets more complicated than this or a little bit too heavy, call in someone else if I, cause I'm gone and you, I don't, they haven't replaced me yet. It's, I don't know if that's a sign of confidence or a, a huge insult, but <laughs> I could, could speak to your ability to write documentation. I mean, the documentation could have been good enough that they're like, Hey, we got it. We got the Bible here. Um, you, that brings up a good area to discuss, which is, um, not only on the pre-production side of either arena or theatrical, but documentation of your system, whether it's inspectional documentation, owner's uh, manuals, um, uh, training documentation, uh, is something that probably doesn't get looked at enough in terms of necessity or usefulness. Um, in your role as the the rigging and safety manager for a labor company, what do you think? Ha, how, what's your process of documentation, and how have you found the uh, process of creating it and then getting it to be used by the rest of the employees? Sure, that's uh, a great two-parter. So you keep in mind what the second part was, because I'm going to forget while I'm telling you the first part the second part was the rubber meets the road aspect of how and okay now you've written your fancy documentation how do you make it how do you make the people do it now um when you're developing your own training programs as a rigging entity you will quickly discover that there are not many out there's not a cookie cutter template you can you can get so what i did is take there's uh, some OSHA, there's some basic OSHA requirements for training programs. Uh, I don't remember the titles offhand, but if you have a supplemental links scenario available, we can put all this stuff up there. So there's OSHA stuff. There's also ANSI guides. Uh, I think it's the Z490 that have uh, recommendations for what a training program should contain. So you you get the you know the OSHA and the ANSI guidelines for how to develop a training program sorted out. Or at least this is how I did it. And then you go through what you need your employees to learn and make sure that step by step you're checking off all of the boxes of the things that they need to both learn how to learn it and how to demonstrate that they've learned those things, whether it's part of the written exam or part of the uh, demonstration of proficiency. And you have to write out your curriculum. So what's contained in your classroom portion and what's contained in the physical demonstration aspect and how those two are going to be combined and how you're going to go about implementing those uh, uh, policies or educational programs once they've left the room. 
So as far as the documentation goes, that's how I developed the paperwork for the actual classroom uh, you know, skeleton. Then you have to make up the material that applies to what your employees are actually going to be doing. You know, and this, like when I wrote up our injury and illness protection program, there was an old one that I inherited, and I started whittling out stuff like um, radioactive material handling and trench digging. And these were things that our employees are not going to be um, around. And I do train them that if they see a radioactive label or are asked to go in a trench, to call the office. <laughs> so I don't need them to know how to do those things. They need to know how to avoid them and that they are not obligated to do those things. But I'm not going to train them how to deal with those situations because it's not um, germane to their uh general job assignments. So the same with rigging and the same with uh, fall protection. I pick the specific assignments that they're going to do and the environments they're going to be working in, and I train them to work safely in those environments. So if they're asked to go up on a beam and there's no horizontal lifeline, they don't have to suddenly become rope access specialists. They need to come downstairs and call the office and tell them there's a problem, tell us there's a problem and we need to sort out with the client why did you tell us there was safety here and there's not? And we deal with it separately. So you have to tailor your training program to meet the needs of your employees. So let's say you've done all that, which is a whole thing, believe me. And uh, I have a bunch of uh, PowerPoints and keynotes and various, you know, training videos and stuff. And if anyone wants access to any of those things, you know, I share them around. Someone called the other day and said, I need to train my guys in Fall Pro. What do I do? <laughs> so first I said, call a professional. And he said, I did. I'm talking to you. And I went, oh, boy. <laughs> yep. So, you know, we had a long talk about what it is he needed them to do and how to do it. And I managed to give him some good advice because they're manufacturing their own brackets for this wireless system that they install. And I said, do you know about you, know, you have to load test proof test your brackets if you're going to be manufacturing stuff, you have to proof test and label. And so I sent him the OSHA, you know, requirements for that. Um, after you've got all that, oh, so the point is I'll share. I think safety should be open source and I don't hoard my, you know, slides to myself and every, everything, the trainings for, with you that I've gone to and every, every conference or symposium that I've been to, all the presenters for the most part are happy to share it around. A couple of them have said like, you know, these are that there's video in here from shows that are still on tour and i just want to show you an example please don't right. share the video fine but for the most for the meat and potatoes part everyone's happy to to share around and i am as well the we ethan you and i talked about this off mic a little bit the other day about um the old the old guard of rigging whether it was for personal reasons of not wanting someone to take their job or for uh, self-conscious reasons of not knowing the answer to your question, um, would, faint, would not be willing to share. Whether they didn't want to admit they didn't know <laughs> or they didn't exactly know or whatever the reason. If I don't know, and I tell people this in the rigging class up front, this is a huge aspect. If you don't know the answer to something, don't pretend you do. That's beginning of disaster exactly. that's one of the ways things spiral out of control so not to get off uh off topic so you've got your training program i use the ANSI and osha guidelines for how to develop a training program and i make sure i tick all those boxes or at least the ones that are relevant and if they're not relevant make that argument 
at that time. Make that argument in paper, ask around, ask Ethan, ask other people in the industry, hey, do you, you know, is missing this going to be uh, going to come back to bite me in the ass? Because if you're skipping over an ANSI recommendation, the onus is going to be on you to explain why you why? knew better than ANSI to skip this part of the training. So you have to really say, we don't do that. We don't do that. And I'm not training them to do it because I'm training them to call me and tell me someone asked me to do this. So you're training them about it to recognize it, but not necessarily how to how it, to deal with it at the time. It, it gets into that discussion about uh, a competent person and a qualified person and the competent person having the ability to recognize um hazardous situations and i'm paraphrasing here uh but a competent person has uh, the ability to recognize existing or predictable hazards and has the authority to take prompt corrective actions that doesn't necessarily mean that that same person it could but that same person doesn't necessarily have the qualification or is not the qualified person to know how to solve that hazard appropriately outside of complete mitigation of, hey, we're going to walk away from that hazard. We don't know how we're going to fix it. So they are now going to reach out to the qualified person to say, how do we fix this? And together. Go ahead. I just said big thumbs up. Sorry. Ah, no, it's fine. Um, and it's possible. It was worth it. it, was worth it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt you again with my big thumbs up. Nice. Um, if we were doing this on Zoom, we could give each other thumbs up through the thing. It would float up our screamers at Facebook Watch or whatever. Um, what I was saying was that uh, you can be a competent and qualified person. You know, you can be both. You can be one. You can be the other. Uh, the point being is that uh, when you're recognizing that there is something that is not as it was laid out and planned for, to have the self-awareness to say, this is where my knowledge level stops and this is what I have to do to properly uh, proceed. Um, yeah, knowing what you don't have to know is a big part of rigging or what someone else is supposed to know. And if you're new and you're not sure what it is you're supposed to know, you might accidentally take on more than you can chew or we're even supposed to be chewing you're not supposed to eat that put that down that's not your job <laughs> well i was just going to get to the second part of your uh your question which is how do you implement but uh one but before i do one more problem i was going to uh emphasize about the training program especially for rigging is if you don't have the space you don't own an arena. How are you going to train someone to walk beams in an arena without having them walk beams in an arena? So I'm dealing with a warehouse space with a you know 30 foot ceiling, and we have a truss structure in there, but it's not. And uh, I can put a beam across some truss and strap it down so that they can walk a beam six feet off the ground and figure out how to pull rope while maintaining their balance on a beam but the weights are going to be wrong right you know right. i can't so i have them i'm trying to invent all kinds of ways for them to pull sandbags across the floor to mimic yep. the feeling yep. of a chain but you can only get so close you can't really get 100 percent fidelity right perhaps as often as you'd like to but you need to try you know 
you uh, I, having them pull ropes standing on a truss to me was pointless because they're never going to do that. So you got to put a beam on there. Maybe you have a couple beams. Here's your I beam. Here's your rounded beam. Here's why one of them is if you see one as opposed to the other, here's where your red flag should go up and you should say, all right, I'm going to need a hand pulling this up so that someone you can break it and hold it while I do the basket because it's an eight inch rounded beam and I'm just not going to be able to do it. You know, and knowing that those are that that is an expected move. If you're brand new to the world of arena rigging and you've never seen it, you'll think, well, I guess this is the gig and you'll go out and try to do it at great personal risk. So, yep. And we so talked this, about this uh, last episode with uh, Ben Bryan from Reed Rigging that um, in their training facility, they have a steel structure that um, they try to get people up on, as well as, I believe, in Las Vegas, the new Entertainment Technicians Training Center run by Eric Rouse has a mock-up. And, you know, there it, it's, it's similar to the way that I choose to teach, which is the building blocks thing. Start by becoming comfortable at 10 feet off the ground. Yes, as you said, and that's a very good point, which is, the lower steel mock-ups are not going to give you the same experience of pulling 65, 80 feet of half ton, one ton, or two ton chain in a team that doing it in the arena well. So, but that being said, I think it's a nice progression from talking about it in theory, um, getting comfortable with your feet on the flange and your own body mechanics on that particular beam. Um, so I certainly think that's a, uh, a consideration for people to think about. So what I do after the training program, and I do this for ground riggers and upriggers, you got to track them. You got to track for me. I track my students cause it's pretty easy. They all work for us. So I already have all their information and I know exactly where they're going and when they're going there. So it's not it's not like tag and release salmon. I, I don't have to walk around the neighborhood with a radio frequency detector to see where my riggers are at. So if I have a new ground rigger, for example, uh, they've been through the class, they've done the coursework, they've demonstrated proficiency, they've got all their knots. You know, I've had them build br build some bridles and build some baskets and whatever, and they're ready to go out. I will uh, let the head rigger know you've got a new person. And I will pick an experienced ground rigger to pair them with and say, shadow this person and work side by side with them until you feel ready to go out and tackle some stuff on your own. Um, and uh, then I follow up with the head rigger and who they were paired with to see how they did afterwards, to see if they need some more work or if maybe they're good with the book and the classroom learning, but out in the field it was just too much pressure or whatever and i tell them you know there's there can't be any ego here if this is not your jam don't worry about it you know <laughs> we'll keep working you on it and the same with the upriggers especially with uh, beam situations you know you're going to work in a pair with someone who's done this before so they can show you uh, all the fun tricks of the trade rope management you know if you're going to be on a rounded beam pull the point from the corner where you can lean against a support and then just push your basket along the beam to where it needs to be once you get it once you get it attached if that's you know feasible just all the little maneuvers you can do to keep yourself uh safe while you're up there and know what the limitations are and what's expected of you working in a team up there 
it's the team aspect. You know, there's a lot of cowboys, a lot of mercenaries, a lot of lone wolves. And when they all get together, you've got to work as a team or the gig's not going to get done and someone's going to get hurt. Hey, you know, I, your Skype camera keeps freezing while you're blinking. And I look up and it just looks like you're asleep. And I, I it's really it's really unmotivating. I was asleep. <laughs> sorry. Um, <laughs> something you said about, you know, the, the team aspect or, uh, you know, learning certain things. I think that's important for someone who's starting to travel a lot to keep in mind is that your local crew that you're working with is going to teach you the little tricks of that specific venue. Um you know, when I do my classes and we talk about bridles and figuring out bridle lengths, I admit to people, I don't build a lot of bridles anymore. I don't do it a lot to stay very uh, fresh at it. Um, part of that is the size of shows that I typically was doing when I was working for a lighting company. We'd go into an arena and the house crew was figuring out the bridles for me. I'd draw my marks on the floor and say I want it there, and then I'd walk away and come back, and they're already building the bridles. They know the dimensions of the space. They know what works. And as as the production rigger, I would trust that crew to say, hey, you you want to do this efficiently and well? Let's do that together. I don't micromanage. Um, but I would keep my eyes open so I could watch things, so I could learn things from them. Um, we, uh, we talked about, you know, and this will, I think, come up all the time in our discussions of, uh, always being willing to learn new things to add to your toolbox and, and, you know, it may be something really small. It could be some little trick about how you manage your rope or something else that, you know, you'll learn and will just make you that much more efficient, safer. Um, so along the line, so you talked about documentation and and rolling that out to your staff and then tracking them, which I think is a, a great idea to kind of get a progress report. Besides the creation of the documentation or the program, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges that you face as the rigging and safety manager? Mm, keeping up with the fall protection um inspection requirements or suggestions from ANSI has been challenging because everyone has their own gear so it's not coming in and out of my hands ever and it's incumbent upon me to inspect their harnesses and lanyards and other connective devices twice annual as a competent person we don't have currently any other competent people out in the field so they do buddy checks and they know as authorized users how to inspect their harness and how to inspect a harness but um, having a competent person inspect it twice annually has been tricky so right now i'll admit it's a weak point i have to it's sort of slipshod i catch them when i can and I'll photograph, you know, tag and <laughs> photograph and release their tags to make sure that at least I'm keeping track of what they have and how old it is and what it is. And there have been a couple harnesses and lanyards that I have said, well, I don't know who you got this off of on eBay, but see if you can get your money back because it's, you know, <laughs> not going to work. Yeah. Um, because it's 
expensive, you know, and if you're just getting into it and uh, you're part time and you don't do it enough to maybe uh, rationalize the $500 expenditure on a new Petzl or what have you, um, you'll look for a used one or you'll look for, uh, you, you know, you want the fancy climbing one, but you don't want to spend the money. You know, you can just for our purposes, you just need a fall protection harness to work within the liability quotient of the, you know, you just need a $70, $150 3M, you know, the standard issue. Right. It's not going to be comfortable, but it'll motivate you to definitely not fall. Cause when I hoist right. you up on your D ring, you're going to be like, Oh, this sucks. Yep. <laughs> so for those of you who are not very versed in the world of fall arrest and, uh, I emphasize that because we'll start from the beginning. OSHA has a, a series of safety measures when you're working at height. The first one is to mitigate or to remove the hazard altogether. And then the second thing is safety rails to keep you from being able to fall. Then they look at safety nets. Now, when I do my trainings, I often will mention to people there is one organization or one company, a producer that uses a lot of safety nets in our business, and that would be Cirque. They have some shows with very large pits, so mm -hmm. they will do safety nets on those. And then the last thing is fall restraint and arrest, and arrest being the second portion of that. So you are falling. Gravity is pulling you towards the ground, and now this system is designed to stop you from going splat, like we talked about in the first episode. Um, within fall arrest, there's um, a whole lot of regulations, and it's uh, extremely difficult to apply that to a lot of the situations that we work in in the entertainment business, in part because a lot of times we're on trust, we're on what or temporary or portable structures um, and how do they deal with those forces. But ultimately back to what Phil was saying is that you are allowed to. So by law in the United States, OSHA requires that the employer provide appropriate PPP, PPE, sorry, to the employee. There are some exemptions in terms of uh, personal items like uh, footwear, um, prescription safety glasses, harnesses, fall arrest is one of those things that is required for the employer to provide. However, there is a an exception or a allowance that if an individual employee owns a harness because it is fitted to their body size, the employer has the right after inspecting it to allow the employee to use it. However, the onus is on the employer to make sure that it is uh, functioning properly, that it's made, that it meets the, the requirements set forth by OSHA. Um, in the same way that an employee says, hey, this harness, you know, has a nick in one of the straps. I'm not going to use it. The employer has the right to say the same thing to the employee and say, hey, sorry, this doesn't meet it. Here's one of ours for now. I know it's not the same, but it will work for now and we'll revisit it later. So um, meeting that requirement of the representative of the employer looking at a new person. So when you hire a new person who has a great resume, and, you know, they've been upriggering for years and they've been traveling around the country. Um, if they own their own harness, um, 
you're not going to let them use that until you have that first opportunity to inspect it. And then at that point, assuming they're going to use that harness going forward into either they replace it or um, some other situation. And, uh, you know, twice a year, you're trying to look at it to check up on it. Yeah. The way I, um, the way I throttle that process is um, everyone who uprigs, uh, or operates a boom lift for us has to go through fall protection training. So I have my own fall pro in-house course that I do. And that involves tagging all their gear, checking all of it, getting that, make sure they know <laughs> they didn't just buy it yesterday and have no idea what it is. I make them put it on and check the fit and give them some advice and say, where's your relief straps? Okay. You're going to want to get some of those. <laughs> Here's why hoist them up. See, see how much you're not comfortable 30 seconds into this? Well, it's going to be another 10 before anyone gets you down. So get some relief straps and uh, give them general advice about what they need or how to get it. And we have equipment. We will let them, you know, have. I will assign them uh, harnesses and and, and lanyards if they don't have them. So we do provide them. It's just that, as you know, most people prefer to use their own gear. If they're serious riggers, they'll have sourced that for themselves at some point along the way. But we got to check it because as you uh, gave a brilliant rundown of the hierarchy of controls, fall arrest and providing PPE to mitigate fall arrest is like the worst option. It's the least desirable solution, but for upbringing uh, off a beam, we haven't invented it until they get drones to fly those points up there. We haven't invented a safer way. Uh, so if you want the show to go on, you people are exposing themselves to fall hazards to get that show up and making sure that they're trained and outfitted properly is vital because you're already pushing, you're already pushing your luck by, you know, you're, you've, you've got the least desirable, least safe option in front of you. Like there's no other way to do this. Um, some of the sound stages will will rent, you know, the 90 foot booms for their taller uh, beams, so that you don't have to go up there. And that's nice of them, but that doesn't always happen. And if I can get out, and that comes down to planning, you know, if I can be involved in the planning and say, just spend the $800 and get the boom, and then <laughs> right. uh, you won't have to there are as many upriggers and it'll still get done at about the same speed and no no one will be in danger will be in a fall arrest situation um, but then tracking all the fall pro stuff there's currently no guidelines about well i no sorry i take that back ansi has um i think a two-year recommendation that people get retrained but otherwise it's not um and correct me if i'm wrong on that but it's not a uh, mandate. It's a. Uh, it's not a shall. It's a should, unless they've demonstrated uh, foolhardy behavior or been involved in an incident. You know all those OSHA tricks that make bring them in. Forklift research. There's the same thing for all other training. You know I treat so I treat rigging the same way. I'm not going to retrain you how to be an uprigger if you've been doing it for ten years. But if there's an incident, you're going to get hauled in and we're going to find out what caused this, uh, what might cause it again. And in certain cases, there have just been personality conflicts that led to incidents 
and we for the good of the team certain people had to be let go because you know it's like have it's like managing a high school drama department or four-year-olds you know i don't think people change ethan from when they were four years old they just learned to mask their general instincts and they just they just learned that it's inappropriate to say those things at this time but otherwise you know they're just people so to i treat it the same way like i don't care who started it you're continuing to make this a problem so you can either figure out a way to live with it and swallow it and move on as a team, or we're going to have to rearrange things you know, you can get a desk job or go somewhere else, but I don't care if you're right. (laughs) You're causing, this is now a safety issue because people can't, aren't comfortable working with you or around you or what have you. And I, I'm not sure that's really an answer to your question or that you even had a question, but it is something I apparently felt like saying. So now here we are. It's it's the beauty. It's a discussion. It can go wherever it needs to go. Um, But training is tough, man, because there's no I mean, there's paperwork guidelines, but there's not a lot of uh, places you can go. I mean, if you don't have the resources to go to conferences and go to symposiums and go to trainings so that you can see what works and what you like and what you want to pirate and what you want to what you want to cut out, it's if you're just faced with the blank page and a group of people who need to be protected by a training program, it can be very daunting uh, to get started on that. So uh, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I'm happy to share uh, the road that I've hewn for myself. Uh, uh, if that can be used as a helpful template for anyone to get started. But yeah, I've seen so many cut and paste safety uh, so much cut and paste safety paperwork where, you know, they didn't even bother to take the last name of the show out or the last name of the venue or whatever. And clearly whoever's in charge of that is not worried about how to implement those programs, because if they were, they would have seen that it was nonsense and it didn't apply to this situation. So once you've written your program, uh, you've got to reevaluate it. You know, I revisit it almost every gig. There's especially these days, you know, I'm going to work in Burbank tomorrow at a soundstage and I had to revisit all of the safety paperwork because it's all a little bit different now and it's all going to be different. And we don't know how it's all going to work, how you're going to combine your um, fall protection plans and your illness and injury protection plans and your rigging safety guidelines with the CDC and new OSHA guidelines, it's going right. to be interesting because it's not necessarily compatible. So we have to find out how it, how to make it compatible. And I think that's why we booked 10 days to take down five line sets. <laughs> right. Well, it's certainly a, a steep learning curve for everyone about how you implement some of these procedures to try to make sure that we, you know, stem the curve um social distancing on you know maybe easy in some aspects and may not be on others you know how do you team lift something that's heavy uh and maintain social distancing you know um likes to say instead of social distancing he likes to say stay out of melee range yes Yes, I I believe that everyone should be taught fencing because it allows you a good thing where if you get too close, I get to stab you. Um, (laughs) So, um, hi, I'm Ethan Gilson, and welcome to another episode of Get Away From Me. 
<laughs> exactly. Um, that's typically me in the morning. Um, so speaking of stabbing, I'll use that as a segue. Do you have any uh, good rigging horror stories? And let me preface it this way, that have positive end results. Obviously, we don't want to just tell the stories where, you know, people get hurt. Yeah, no, the um, that that could be a whole separate podcast. The you know, safety accident porn uh, show, and I'm. It took me a minute to realize you had said horror, and I was like, I don't have any rigging horror stories. Certainly none with positive outcomes. So I will move on now to the rigging horror. And right. uh, that might be that might be my Boston accent kicking in occasionally. Yeah, heads up. So yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't have any good ones. I don't want to I don't want to ruin uh, your the, the the entertainment value of your program. But, you know, the horror stories for me are when you've committed to do something and then you show up and realize uh, you weren't clear. Or someone, you know, there's something missing that is preventing this job from being able to happen. Like, um, so instead of one big one, I'll give you a couple little ones. I showed up at a, an old theater to rig a, uh, uh, LED wall. And I, when I got there, there was just one vertical ladder unprotected 60 feet up. And they had a rope hanging down, so I thought, okay. And I went over there, and there was a, a rope grab with a, uh, a carabiner. Well, I use that term loosely. You know those, like, shopping bag carabiners with the foam on the handle? It had one of those on it. Nice. Um, I was mad at that point, so I took it off, and I, I put it against a brick, and I broke it. <laughs> I just left it there. Then I got my own thing. I went to the car, got my own thing. And then uh, I got up there and the, the the vertical lifeline that I just climbed up was tied around a piece of Schedule 40 pipe that was just loose sitting across the, the grid at the top of the ladder. <laughs> I was like, oh, God damn it. So way back in the day before I was uh, a cool dude, Someone said, uh, hey, who likes to climb? I didn't know climbing was an industry term. I thought, I climb trees, I climb fences, whatever, I'll climb. So this was their fault, really. They watched me put the harness on backwards and then took it off me and put it on and sent me up anyway. So I blame them. Yep. But, <laughs> uh, so I climbed this vertical ladder, the, the rope ladder. And the, the reason they needed me to climb is because the set had gone in. So the truss grid could not be lowered. And they had some 5Ks that needed to be focused before the press conference. So I climb up there and I realize and I see the SLR and I realize I'm not clipped into it and that I was supposed to be the whole time. And then that's when I realized I have no idea what I'm doing and I shouldn't be up here. But I was young and a cool dude. So I just clipped myself in at that point and went to work. And what I needed to do, the 5Ks were underhung. So I had so this was the system. I clipped myself onto a span set on the bottom cord of the truss, sort of fell off the truss and hung there, focused the 5K, and then had to do a full 
body dead pull dead hang pull up without kicking it out of focus and i did that nine times and by the ninth one i, I couldn't climb i couldn't get up <laughs> and the right. press conference had started so I was just dangling there, like kind of in the dark, because I'm behind a 5K. But I was like, well, if anyone looks up. But and at, I was such a cool dude at that time. I even called my employer from my cell phone, which I still had just in my pocket and asked about hazard pay. <laughs> I was I was going to ask if you got a spot call out of it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I just had to stay there till I was strong enough to pull myself, till I was rested enough to pull myself back up. And then it was years and years before I did any sort of climbing again. But that's a good example of how if you don't know what someone is talking about, don't agree to do it. God damn it. How many times right. did you... <laughs> so I learned that lesson? And we're real... going to beat that one into the ground. Um, so you had mentioned uh, you went out to your car, you got a you know a new carabiner, you got the stuff you needed. Um, you have any cool tools right now that are your your favorite, or any widgets or any other things that are like rocking your tool bag right now? Yes, um, it's brand name. I didn't build it myself. It's uh, called the Skyhook, and it's a wrist, um, the Velcro wrist strap with a little specialized uh, attachment and there's a matching specialized attachment you put on your on your belt and then there's a little so that's one component it's the belt and wrist and then there's a lanyard there's this there's the proprietary lanyards that they build that are like six or eight inch um solid oh, they make different types but the ones i have are like uh, plastic coated steel and on the end, on one end is the little carabiner for tools. And on the other hand, end is this two-pronged, it looks like an anchor. And one side will clip onto your wrist, and then it won't come off of your wrist until you clip it onto the other piece on your belt. So you just reach okay. down and you slide it off, you slide the tool off your wrist onto the belt component. And then when you want it back, you just grab it with your wrist off your belt. So it's 100% tied off all the time. All the time. But um, you don't have the length restriction of it being on your belt and you can't reach the object you're trying to reach for. Correct. And yeah. I found that to be, it was a total treat when I was replacing idler wheels up in the grid because i needed a box wrench and a socket wrench uh in one in each hand to get the bolts and nuts off of and it was great to just do your work up there and then you could just drop them and they'd hang off your wrists while you get the nuts and bolts out and then you slide them off onto your belt like a super cool guy and then you it's put like the batman. hardware away is to the batmanification of my belt has been a lifelong uh, process for me so like any other tool, it has some drawbacks, but when you hit a, hit a job where that sort of flexibility is useful, it's super, uh, super helpful. I will mention that I mentioned a socket. Sockets are one of the dropped object uh, tools that are still really tricky. If you get a socket set at height, obviously, um, <laughs> sadly, you need to shell out the money for the... Um, you know, the dropped object style sockets that need a tool to get yep. the socket on and off the ratchet. When I was you in... obviously secure the socket. And everyone probably by now, by now knows the famously infamous story about the nuclear missile silo explosion in Arkansas that was a result of a dropped socket. 
1980 and almost caused World War III. Wow. When I was in college, we used, yeah, when I was in college, we used to, because it was a fixed inventory, we would weld the sockets to the ratchet so that they couldn't uh, fall off. Um, but that's a little excessive and, you know, <laughs> not very versatile if you're dealing with uh, multiple size hardware. Um, you just said something that made me think of a comment and I already forgot what it was. So, yeah, we'll move on. Do with World War Three because no, nope. Now we didn't get that far down the rabbit hole. At least that's off the table for now. Where everyone's too busy. Oh, I remember what I was going to say. Um, in the uh, notes for this episode, I will put links to some of the things we've been talking about so that you can find them there. Um, as soon as we dig up the notes and the. Uh, the URLs for those objects. So I'll I'll put in the notes the the uh, hyperlink for the the tool the the securing devices the Batman yeah. tool belt that we were just talking about. Um, so shifting subjects a little bit, who have been some of the mentors for you in the rigging industry? Um, I know you had mentioned who you work for, uh, Boxer who uh, has been in the industry for a long time and is one of the individuals, not only himself, but it, uh, Bigger Hammer Productions has been very supportive as a sponsor for the Event Safety Alliance. And he has worked on um, a lot of programs to increase safety within the, the industry. Um, but can you talk about some of the people who've helped uh, guide you in this uh, wacky world of ours? Um, there are a lot of giants in the field, and I've certainly learned a lot from reading their books and watching their, uh, watching them speak and give presentations and such. But I never had one individual. When it was my job to learn, it was just my job to learn, and I just scoured the internet for the types of, you know, the Jay Glaram's book on rigging did not dive with my brain for whatever reason but delbert hall's rigging math made simple did so just been piecing it together myself and i here's what i'll call my my teacher my mentor circus riggers traveling circus riggers um, i worked at a venue where we had circuses come through all the time from the one man at thing to the full you know, trapeze and, you know, silks and what all those all those riggers, every time they came in, I would learn new knots. I would learn new, um, you know, sh not sh uh, uh, shortcuts is maybe the wrong word, but just faster, more efficient ways to manage inventory or to accomplish tasks or, you know, what kind of. Oh, wow. Rope is getting really this. This rope is ten dollars a foot for a reason, because. It's like a quarter inch and it'll do more than steel. You know, there's new products, new new techniques, uh, a lot of uh, pulley systems that can be engineered to do all kinds of lifting. And so every time a, a circus rigger would come through, I would befriend them and we'd go out for drinks and we would, you know, because we would work hand in glove for a few days getting this show together. And I would just hang out with them and learn everything that they had to learn and hear their horror stories and I learned how to splice, 
you know, Kern Mantle rope with one guy who had the tool set and he showed me how to do, you know, the rope splicing. And so I did five years of, you know, the school of touring circus riggers, I guess. And by the time I got out of there with my ETCPs and working, you know, throwing yourselves into situations where you might not be able to figure it out, but you are have the confidence to know that you have the resources available to find out and to execute appropriately and just trusting yourself enough or having the wisdom to know that maybe this isn't the right field for you, whichever comes first. So far, I haven't gotten that far, so I'm still doing it. <laughs> but, um, I, uh, uh, oh, wait, no. Ethan Gilson has been a mentor to me. And many, is it too late to backtrack? Just No, no, uh, we can take that out and post. Yeah, great, great. So no, I didn't have. I never work. I never was fortunate enough to work in an organization where there was someone who I've always just been aware that more people, other people, know more than me. And if they don't, if they don't, there's something that I can still learn from them. And when I started at Bigger Hammer, I called in all of our head riggers, all of our upriggers for one-on-ones to talk to them about what they knew and let them know what I didn't know. And what I was going to need them for and what I needed to find out from them about this venue, that venue, whatever. And I tried to be as egoless and prideless as possible in my self-assessments with them. Like, look, there's a lot of stuff you know that I don't know. I don't know if there's anything I know that you will find useful, but I'm available for questions at any time. And you can, you know, it's not going to affect your job security for you to admit you don't know something to me. That, to me, uh, shows great strength and self-awareness if you can come to me and say i am encountered this thing and i don't know what it is let's talk about it right i don't i i, I sent everyone from you know greenhorn stagehands all the way up to upriggers i tell them the same thing please don't try to do stuff you don't know how to do <laughs> and there's yeah. nothing wrong with with acknowledging you don't know how to do it it's incredibly dangerous and i know this because when i was a greenhorn stagehand I did. I would make that mistake all the time. People would say, "Go over to that uh, that knack box and get some cheeseburgers uh, over to the over to the to that line array." I'd be like, "Well, I don't know what any of those words were, but he did point in that direction, so I'm going to walk over there and see if anything <laughs> see if anything jumps out at me." Like that was just that was right. wasting everyone's and it, time. How much time did you waste trying to figure out what they said instead of saying, uh, "What's a cheeseburger?" And then going, oh, it's this. And then not Pipe only did plants. it get done faster, exactly, it got done faster and correctly, but now you learned, and the next time you were able to execute. Um, yeah, I don't know how many sandwiches I brought to people and was like, is this close enough? It's pastrami. It's all they had. I know you wanted a cheeseburger. But... It's something on a bun. So. If that, so sorry, I don't. I don't have anyone specific to throw out, but. That's fine. Um, as you and I both know, uh, you have already listed all of the industry giants as your close personal friends and acquaintances. So <laughs> <laughs> I stayed at a Holiday Inn last night, so you know. You know uh, what I will say is that I have been consistently surprised that if I have a question, um, that engineers, architects, riggers, people with their own, you know. Uh, newsletters and blogs and uh, TV shows and whatever, like, will often answer your questions if you ask them something thoughtful and specific. 
You know, if you, if you come at them with like, hey, my name's Phil and um, I'm having trouble. That's not, you know, you might not get a response from that. But if you take the time to formulate your question clearly, I've found that people are often overwhelmingly willing to help out or at least refer you to some other website or person who might have time to help you. You know, it's I've found nothing but support so far. It's it's very I have not you know, you encounter grumps on the road periodically and that happens and learning how to diplomatically manage them without causing more trouble than it's worth is just one of those life skills that you can't really pick up until you've been in that situation. But I try to remind people, you know, if someone's having a bad day, this is a stressful uh, world that we all work in. And whether it happens to you or not, you're going to encounter people who are having bad days. And please take a moment to take a breath and remember that they are having a bad day. Right. It is not Absolutely. your fault that they are having a bad day. And, you know, cut them some slack. Try not to take it personally. And if you need to, walk away. <laughs> yeah. So you talked about, you know, always finding people who are willing to give you a, a little help and assistance answer questions. Um, in this current, as we're recording these podcasts, we're all sitting at home, not working in spaces very much because of social distancing and, and um, stay at home orders. And hopefully soon we start to come out of that. Um, you figured out kind of an interesting way of taking advantage of some of the time you had by creating some short, condensed little training videos on topics that you thought would be helpful for your staff. Um, and uh, I've, I've watched all of them. And it, what I liked about them is, is that they're they're very short. They're just little five six seven minute long nuggets to say of of information and it's done in videos so that uh for most of us who are visual learners you want to talk a little bit about um you know how you came up with doing that and 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 kind of the idea behind it a little and again we'll, sure. we'll post the link for some of those in the notes of the uh episode here sure and as you know you know when you're providing training to people um it can be very time consuming if everyone shows up to the class at different levels. And you can spend a lot of time and it, a lot of time alienating half the class by discussing something technically advanced and half the class alienating the other half by talking about how shackle shackles work or whatever. Right. So before. So I wanted a way to bring people in closer to the same page or at least to have, you know, if they're interested in ground rigging, and they want to learn. I want them to be able to uh, get the most efficacy uh, and get the greatest ROI out of the class possible. So I've been talking for a long time about making these uh, a video training series for riggers, for stagehands, you know, because there's an absence of that basic kind of information. And you could have a very qualified stagehand who does not have experience loading trucks and now someone's hurt. So, you know, just, so uh, right now I've been started with the rigging, but, you know, I aim to branch out into all of these, all of the little nuggets, right? Not a comprehensive, here's how to be a stagehand, but today here's how to magic corner a deck. 
today, here's out of Magic Corner of Trust. And remember, just because one guy's carrying a 10-foot stick on his head doesn't mean that's how everyone should do it or whatever. You know, just the, here's how you four-corner something. Here's how you do not three-corner something, you know? Right. So right now, trying to stick with uh, ground-rigging basics, and then I'm going to move to up-rigging basics. And instead of trying to do one sort of comprehensive, here's a video about how to be a ground-rigger, I'm just putting out what I noticed an absence of is the logistical, functional, practical methods of how to accomplish the rigging. You can read a book all day long about the math, and you can know how much load uh, you know, three-eighths steel basket is capable of managing. But if you don't know how to build a dead hanger, build a bridle on the ground for an uprigger, and where to attach the rope, and how to attach the rope, you're going to be useless out in the field. So this was just like, if you're going to be starting out in the field and you need a quick reminder of, or you want to know the basics of how to assemble the steel and where to tie the rope, I'm not including stuff like, here's the load-bearing capacity of this shackle and here's how to inspect a cable. That stuff's covered in the class and that stuff you're going to know separately. This is just, you tie in the rope here. If it's this kind of basket, you tie in the rope here if it's that kind of basket. And I've noticed that there's no videos out there that cover that kind of, to us, maybe second nature basic information. But it's also very mysterious to the people who have not been acquainted with it. And there's often not a lot of time for on the job training. You know, right. clients don't necessarily appreciate it. And there's always, there's not always time or willing instructors. You can be a perfectly brilliant upriger and have no capacity for passing information on from yourself to someone else. So, uh, yeah, I wanted it short because I wanted to cover one subject at a time, and now I have access to a warehouse where I can have the gear and film all that material, and then, as you know, I do my intros and outros at home, and the kids love it, so that's yeah. easy because I only really do things that my kids let me do while I'm at home. So it's a good thing they enjoy it. And as I mentioned in the videos, if people have suggestions of things they want to see explained, I will do my best to explain them. And uh, Ethan, you already suggested doing motor control. So I'm gonna, that's the one I'm going to do next. Yeah, absolutely. So right now it's on Vimo. And as I said, we'll include the link to you, uh, the videos in the notes section for the episode. Right now you have four episodes. You have... Um, Basic Knots Part 1, leading us to believe there will be a Part 2, but it's just a little bit. Again, that one is five and a half minutes long. There's rigging, uh, basic rigging split basket, which uh, for those of you who are novices, a split basket is when you take two pieces of wire rope to form your loop around the beam instead of one. Um there is a video about uh, the rock and roll basket, which is a term we use for the standard configuration of the wire rope and shackles and the chain motor hook. Um, and then there's one about uh, your procedures that you guys do a bigger hammer for when you're rigging from what is now known as a mobile elevated work platform or MUP. We traditionally call them aerial lifts or boom lifts or any other number of lifts. They've recently changed the terminology, so they're called MUPs. Um, and as I said, I, I, I found them very engaging and useful. 
Um, and I know more are coming. So I think that's a great resource for people. And whether it's, again, novices or experienced people, you learn little tricks. Um, I freely admit to people, I do not spend a lot of time on high steel anymore. It's not where I am in my career. So it's helpful to see things that kind of refresh my memory so that, A, when I'm teaching or if I'm doing a show and I'm working with someone who is up in the air, I have an understanding of what they're doing and I can communicate better with them. Um, so Also, I, you're not in shape. I mean, let's face facts here. Certainly not now. How do you even get up there? Yeah, I mean, we were talking about uh, weight capacities for harnesses and three three thirty being the upper or three ten being the upper threshold. Yeah, yeah, that number is coming quickly. Um, so, one of the questions I've been asking some of the guests has been, uh, where do you see the rigging industry going? And I know that's a difficult question to answer now because of the pandemic. So the previous episode with Ben, I asked him, you know, prior to this happening, where did you see things going? Um, I'll pose the question to you the same way, either prior or if you want to talk about where you see it going after this pandemic starts to subside. um, What are some of the trends or things that you're saying or you want to see? Yeah, here's a couple that I'd like to see. Um, one I already made a video about, and because of ANSI's new standards where they really hammered in that you can't carry stuff up on, attached to the basket anymore, so you can't attach your chains there anymore, As I went and sort of messed around with inventing a, a new way you can do that from a lift while complying with those standards, and I think that just makes sense. I've personally witnessed injuries happen from people trying to take a hook in their hand and freehand it off the basket onto a, a shackle point point and it slips or they lose their balance or it was it was propped up on one side of the, the guardrail and it slips around the corner to the other side and they you know rope burns and you know sprained elbows and wrists and so oh this, my. my version just makes sense to me oh my and the other one is um, for the rock and roll basket. I'm hoping that the video I made is going to become obsolete when we start using uh, specialized slings for the baskets. So shackle on one end and a gate hook uh, style attachment right. on the other side. So you right. don't have loose hardware in the air. You just throw it around there, clip it on, boom, done. And we don't have these drop pins, drop bells. Um, that awkward part where you're bending over, unscrewing stuff and screwing it together. I think that's got to go. And I, I know that there's other countries. I know it's a huge outlay for companies to invest in having specifics because a piece of five foot steel is cheap. Um, right. But getting something right. with specialized uh, attachment connections on on an end, it limits its usage for other things. Now it's just part of your point package. You can't use it for other stuff. And it costs a lot more than just a thimble-eyed sling. But I'm hope there's a speed efficiency happening. There's a speed efficiency potential of you know it's faster to use these things, uh, as well as um, basket assemblies that have the padding already incorporated into the assembly, whether that's um, 
a long coating or I've even seen one company, they sew on four pieces of burlap that are wrapped around the wire rope so they can slide and you can hit your edges of the beam. So there, there are some cool things that, that are coming along that I think if we incorporate, we might continue to increase efficiency. Yeah. I'm hoping that the burlap part of your title is going to become a curiosity to future generations because we're not using that anymore because it's flammable. Absolutely. Uh, did you see that demo PSA where uh, Panther set some burlap on fire with a stage laser? Yes. Yep. Yep. They, <laughs> they, they, they burned some uh, burlap and uh, I've joked by saying, well, Hey, it's, it's a great advertisement for uh, Rose brands, new uh, fire stop 701 products that you can treat your yeah. burlap, but there are some, different products out there that uh people are starting to use for their padding on their beams um that don't have the flammability concerns especially on concerts where you have pyrotechnics or sharpies that are right next to it um mm-hmm. so, so there you go i'm hoping that uh, burlap will be like off the hook kids are going to be confused about where this term came from Exactly. Um, all right. I'm going to hit you with the big one now. Now, I I almost don't want to ask you because I think your qualifications as someone who spent their life for a portion of their life as a comedian might be uh, too versed at this. But what is the best and or worst rigging joke that you know? Um, the... Uh... Well, do you you know, um, uh, I don't know if it's a joke so much as a comical statement, but um, I think Icarus, whatever your feelings about them were, had a great slogan for a while that was, if at first you don't succeed, rigging's not for you. I like that. That works. That, uh, yeah. All right. Well, at least you hadn't heard it before, so I'll take it. That's a win. There you, you mark go. That is a win. Awesome. Do you have any closing comments? Uh, just please reach out to your uh, people in the field, people you know, people you'd like to know. People are more responsive than you'd think. You know, wherever you look at the systems that you exist within, it's people all the way up and it's people all the way down. You're going to have to figure out a way to deal with them at some point. So start learning how to ask for the information that you need. Awesome. Well, Phil, thank you very much for spending time talking with us today. I greatly appreciate it. Um, I love what you and Bigger Hammer are doing uh, in terms of safety and trying to improve the uh, work environment for people in our industry. Um, And keep up the good work. I appreciate it. And for everyone else, thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this. And until next time, keep the pen in the shackle. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger.